kind of at the uh, second half of a series called um, It's Personal. And so we've been looking at the Christmas story as uh, how it relates to our lives individually every day because we learned, you know, a few weeks ago that, that Jesus, his name is the hope of the whole world, but that's no good if he isn't your hope. It doesn't matter if he's the hope of the world if he isn't your hope. And then we talked about how God loves the whole world, and that's great in theory, but if you haven't experienced his love, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, we talked last week about the fact that Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts, of every heart, which is amazing, and it's a great opportunity, but you don't experience what, it's actually, what it actually means until you open the door and make room for him. And so we, we challenged um, uh, each of us to kind of be asking those questions. As I think about those things, is it personal? Is it just a story, or is it personal for me? If you, I don't have a chance to, or time this morning to go over it more than that, and so you can find those online. If you didn't get a chance to hear them, I would encourage you to. There's some uh, good thoughts to be pondering over this, uh, over this season. See, the Christmas story, it's filled with real people. See, we often think about these stories that happened so far back, so long ago, and that we read about them. We read them almost like they're superheroes, you know? Like Mary and Joseph were like these totally um, superhuman type of people, and yet they weren't. They were normal people. And so we know some of the names of, of some of the characters, and some of them we don't. But we know that they were real people, and we can learn something from their stories because there's real people here this morning as well. And so today I want to look at Matthew's account, a little bit more of what he, what he described and as, as he wrote about the, the birth of Jesus. And so Matthew, before we jump in, but I just wanted to explain to you who Matthew was. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, but he became a follower from, from a job as a tax collector, which was one of the most looked down upon uh, jobs. People hated the tax collectors. Nobody wanted to hang out with tax collectors. They were worse than sinners. And then Jesus said, hey, Matthew, come join our group. And everyone else is like, what? We don't want him in our group. And he's like, yeah, we need him in our group. He's going to teach you some things about how to love those who are unlovable. And Matthew's like, hey, what? Okay, you're right. All right, I'm, I'm in. And they go along together. And Matthew, he's an eyewitness. So he sees all the miracles that Jesus did. He was there for the feeding of the 5,000. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw all these things. And, and uh, all through that, he, uh, he, he, he was just um, able to to jot some thoughts down, but he wasn't sure who Jesus really was. None of them really knew who he was. It, they, they didn't know that he was the Messiah until he had died, and then they saw him raised from the dead. Then they knew, they knew this is the Messiah, because no one else raises from the dead. And so then 20 or 30 years later, he's writing this, uh, this letter to the, the Jewish people, trying to help them understand that they missed out on the Messiah, that Jesus really is the Messiah they were waiting for. So he, he starts sharing with them stuff from the Old Testament and tries to help them understand this guy, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He rose from the dead, and they were convinced of that thought. So as Matthew's writing about it, he writes the beginning of Jesus' life um, in the same way, to help people understand this Jesus who, you know, you crucified, he died, he rose from the dead, but he's the Messiah. And so he writes it this way in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem, they asked some questions, and they ended up in the, uh, in the courts of Herod. And we're just going to get the skit guys to show you what that conversation might have sounded like. Are they here? As your advisor, I feel compelled to communicate my hesitation about this meeting. 
Do you even know these men? We do not. So why even take a meeting with them? They are stargazers. They are Gentiles. These men have valuable information. If we play our cards right, they will help us infinitely more than we can help ourselves. Now send them in. Gentlemen, greetings. Welcome. Welcome. My staff tells me you've come a long way. This is true. We've come from the east. Is that right? And I trust your journeys have not been too difficult. They're like most journeys. Some good, some bad, but mostly long. <laughs> so tell me... As a man who doesn't do much journeying myself anymore, what is it that would inspire men such as yourself to undertake such a long trip? Well, as I'm sure you know, word has been spreading about the birth of a Messiah. We witnessed his star, and so we have come to worship him. Is that right? A new Messiah. I must admit, I feel a little silly. This is the first I'm hearing of this. It's said to be in a place called Bethlehem. Do you know where we could find this place? Lucky for you, Bethlehem is only about 10 miles away. 10 miles? Ah. That's such a relief. After so many miles, ten seems just around the corner. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> I know you're eager to resume your journey and witness this new Messiah firsthand, but please, before you go, allow me to be a good host and offer you a drink. To the Messiah. To the new king. Would you do me a favor? Of course. Once you have found this new king, would you come back and tell me exactly where he is so that I might have the opportunity to go and worship him myself? Consider done, King Herod. Safe travels. Quick, turn on the lights. Ugh. You know, not all the characters around the Christmas story were all that uh, friendly or joyful. And um, Matthew, in this story, this part of the story, introduces us to three different characters, three different types of people, three different types of responses 
to, uh, to this message of Jesus. And those three types of people may be here this morning, three types of responses may be here this morning as well. And I'd encourage you as you're listening today to ask yourself, which one of these three am I most like? And you think, well, you know, we start thinking immediately of, you know, when there's three different people that have been introduced, it's probably the three wise men, right? Because, you know, the, the Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, we know, we know that, but that's not in the Bible. There's stuff that we don't know, um, things we don't know about these these wise men, um, and some things we, we have no idea. We don't know their names. We don't know how many that there, there were. We don't know exactly where they came from, but we don't need to know any of that information to learn from what they did. Some of the things we do know is that they were called the Magi, uh, or the, which is like a term that they gave to these royal astrologers from other nations. It wasn't even a Jewish word. It was just, this is, if, you, if they were in the courts of the kings, uh, royal, um, royal advisors, stargazers, they were called by this name of Magi, um, important men, wise men is um, what they, they were called. And so these guys all of a sudden show up in Jerusalem looking for, looking for someone. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, Their question is, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. Some of the things that we learn about them is they were looking for something, and they they came looking for the newborn king of the Jews. They, they knew what they were looking for. They just hadn't found it yet. They were probably riding along with you two playing in their iPods. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And as they're riding their camels through, they realize they're looking for someone. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. Because how did these guys from another nation know that there was going to be a Messiah born? How did they know that they were coming to look for the king of the Jews, the one who would be born king of the Jews? We're like, well, it's a star. But how did they know that that star meant that? And for some, we've, we, they, they say that, you know, they came from the east, and there's a great possibility that they would have been from similar areas to where Daniel, years and years earlier, had been, had been promoted to be a senior advisor there, one of the other wise men, and sharing the stories about, you know, who the, who the, God, the real true God was. And they said, he's the true God. And there would have been prophecies and, and thoughts about this Messiah that was one day coming. And for them, they had heard about this Messiah, and they knew that this, this king was coming, but they were determined to find him. They had traveled some distance we know because they weren't from Israel. They would have had to have crossed the Jordan River, which was a feat in itself. We know that back in that time, travel between nations was dangerous. And for them, they probably would have traveled with a few bodyguards. This could have been a massive procession because they, there was this, the, the idea of it being dangerous and difficult. And we know something about them. They were persistent. You know, as they were leaving wherever they're from their land, and, you know, as they got through, and all of a sudden one of the kings gets the flu, and they're like, oh, you know what, forget it. Let's just go back home. They're like, no, we got to keep going. As they keep going, one of their camels might break a leg, and they're like, oh, you know, it's too hard. Let's just go home. And like, no, no, we got to keep going. We know that no matter what kind of um, um, shortfalls they faced, they never gave up. They kept they kept on with their journey until they could find what they were looking for. Uh, the other day, uh, Link and his friends were playing hide-and-seek here after uh, Saturday night service. They had all the lights off, and he came out, and he was so upset. And I was like, Link, what happened? He's like, I hid so good that the seeker gave up, and she didn't even come and find me. And he was pretty upset because the seeker wasn't very persistent. And I thought about that. You know, it kind of it bugs us sometimes when, you know, the, the people give up too, too quickly and too soon. And for some... There's that idea of, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something, but ah, if I don't find it quick, uh, I'm just going to kind of give up. These folks as well, these wise men, they asked a lot of questions. They asked a lot of questions that made a lot of people nervous, but they didn't care because they wanted to know. They've, they, they, they're, they're, that thought of, I've heard about Jesus, 
but I want to know him. I wanna, I've heard about the Messiah, but I want to see him. And I encourage that there's sometimes there's people that you have questions, and you're like, I'm not sure, but you feel like, I, I don't want to ask. I don't want to look like the only one in the crowd who doesn't know what's going on. And in churches all the time, you find people that just sort of sit, and they don't quite understand, but they never ask these questions. And the seekers, these persistent seekers said, you know what, I don't care what other people are going to think. We're going to ask these questions because we have got to find the Savior. Verse 9 and 10, he says, after this interview with Herod, the wise men went their way, and the star that they had seen in the east, it guided them to Bethlehem. And it went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with great joy. We know early on that they saw a star, and that's what started their journey. They were just doing their regular, everyday, normal life, and all of a sudden they see this star, and it piqued their interest. It was like, wait a second, this star is different from all the other stars that we've ever seen. This one moves, and it stops, and this star's got to mean something. And, you know, they could have they been at that spot and thought, well, you know, the guys getting together, like, I don't know what we smoked last night, but that was the craziest star ever, eh, fellas? And like looking at it like, whoa, man, you know, we're going to have to tell our grandkids someday about that crazy star. And the next night they're out there and like, yeah, we haven't smoked anything, and that star is still there. I mean, what, what is this crazy star? We, we need to kind of think a little bit more about this. And for some, they'd be just like, ah, it was just so weird. But for them, they're like, no, i got to figure out what this is all about. And maybe that's happened for you sometimes where you're, you know, just doing everyday life and there's all of a sudden that thought of like, ah, you know, is there a God out there? You start thinking about things and maybe it's at your work and you're like, maybe you work in, in healthcare or something. You see people and you see um, a, a new baby being born. And you're like, wow, what an incredible miracle uh, that a child is. What an incredible thing our bodies are. Like, why do I have four fingers and a, and a hand? There's... There's got to be something more to this. There's somebody out there. There's, there's got to be some intelligent design of some sort. How come this isn't a foot? How come whatever? And you know, the Bible actually talks about it in Romans. That in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to them and says, listen, they, he says, everyone knows the truth about God. Nobody, nobody's um, immune to this idea about God. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. Like, well, how? I have all these questions. And he says, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth. They've seen the sky. Through everything that God made, they can clearly see his invisible attributes and his qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And it says in verse 21, yeah, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of who God is. And it was this idea, these wise men, they saw these things, they're like, these seekers were like, I, you know what, there's got to be more. I don't know it yet, I'm not sure what it is, but there's got to be something and I'm going to look for it. My challenge this morning is, have you, have you found that spot? Have you found that thing, that person that you're looking for? They said it was, they were filled with exceeding joy. And just remember that word exceeding. They were filled with exceeding joy when they arrived at the place where the star led them. They got to the place where Jesus was. And, and in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, he says, they entered the house. So once they got there, they entered the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down. They worshiped him. They opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some interesting thoughts about these wise men. They followed this star, this amazing and cool star. They followed it all the way to the house. And what they did after that is they didn't stop at the star because they would have had to stop looking at the star to enter into the house. They would have had to just, the, the phenomenon and the amazing sign and wonder, they would have left that 
to move on into the house. And you know what? For many Christians, that's not how it goes. They get to the place, and it's all about watching the signs and looking for the wonders and not actually moving just to find the Savior, the one who it's all about. Jesus had followers like that. These thoughts of, Jesus, what can you do for me? You know, can you, when he was feeding the 5,000, they followed him and said, hey, you know what? He, if you can make food and make bread, do him, you know, and feed us. Well, that's cool. We'll follow you. And they said, if you'll do a miracle, Jesus, just do a miracle so we know that you're the son of God. And that's cool. We'll follow you. And then he would say, listen, I want you to, to deny everything. I want you to come follow me. Like, no, nah, no, nah, that's not cool. We, we're not following you. We're cool with the signs. We're cool with the wonders. But it wasn't that they actually wanted Jesus. And you see from these guys, they walked into the house. And it's amazing. These grown men bowed down and worshipped him. We don't often see that in our culture. This word, it says they got down on their knees and they put their forehead to the ground before a baby, before an infant, before a child in a manger. And some of you are just like awkward just looking at me doing that. And you're like, I can't picture all of us doing that at this moment. It's in our culture. It's foreign. And, but for some of us in our culture, there's this, this, this just, um, we're just okay with Jesus. It's not that there's this awe and this wonder anymore. They broke out costly gifts and made a big deal of Jesus. They gave gold and frankincense and myrrh, all things that were incredibly valuable in their day. And sometimes I think in our culture, that awe of Jesus gets lost. We're just kind of used to how we do Sunday mornings and how we do our, our faith. And this is what it looks like. It's just Jesus, and he's my best friend. And, and we forget, we forget what, what John and what these men, what they saw is that they worshiped him as king. They didn't see him just as, oh, he's just a baby. He's like the king. And we will bow down and worship him. They saw what others didn't see. Because they were seeking him, they got to see what everyone else didn't see. They looked into where others would look and be like, ah, oh, that's a cool little peasant baby from a peasant mom. They were like, no, no, that's a king. You don't realize it yet. They would have looked in and someone would have said, ah, oh, that's just the son of Mary and Joseph. And they're like, no, 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 that's the son of God. And our response to what we see is that we just got to worship him. What do you see when you think about Jesus? These are questions that get lost on us. And we sing that song, oh, come, let us adore him. Like, ah, we don't need to raise our hands and worship. We don't need to sing. We don't need to do any of that stuff. It's just, it's just Jesus. Let's just get through it, you know. And he's saying, oh, come, let us adore him. He's Christ the Lord. Let our eyes be open to see who he really is. Verse 12, it says, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And this was just, I never saw this before until I studied it over the last couple of weeks. That is, These men, they were led externally by a star to the point where they met Jesus, and from that point, they were led from within. They, didn't, they heard the voice of God from the inside. Through a dream, they knew that they were to go a different way, and they began to hear God's voice and his leading in their lives. Are you like the seeker? Are you like the seeker? The second person in, the, in, the, in this group that we're introduced to is King Herod. 
King Herod, we see him there. He's kind of scary. And we know stuff about King Herod from the Bible. But most of the stuff we know about King Herod is actually from other accounts, other historical accounts like Josephus and some other historians who write about what Herod was like, some of the great buildings that he built, some of the things that he, that, uh, that he was known for. But one of the things that, that we realize about him is that he was a Roman-assigned king of the Jews. He submitted to the Romans, and so they said, you can be the king. And his life's mission was to be king. I thought about this. It was almost like the Lion King, right, where Simba wants to, be, wants to be king. And the attitude of those who want to be king is this. No one's saying, do this. No one's saying, be there. No one's saying, stop that. No one's saying, see here, yeah. we got a few Lion King fans. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. I just can't wait to be king. I want to be king. And Herod wouldn't allow anything or anyone to change that fact of him being king. He killed anyone who got in his way to get to that place, and he also killed anyone who threatened to take that away from him. Do you realize that as you look through history, Herod killed his wife and he killed his own sons because he was afraid they were going to take his throne? Crazy thoughts. But this desire to be king. In verse 3, it says about Herod, he says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this news about a new king, about a messiah as was everyone else in Jerusalem. And he was troubled when he heard about this new king. And that response I see today, when people begin talking about Jesus and talking about God, it can elicit some troubling emotions on the inside. It's these thoughts sometimes, you know, of that thought of, I, I don't want the rules. I don't, I, I don't want there to be a, a God. I don't want there to be a Jesus. I, I don't want to have to have religion. I don't want any of that kind of stuff. And it's these emotions that just well up on the inside. I don't want the rules. I, I want to be the one to decide what I do in my life. And we don't know it as that. We wouldn't be able to clearly say that's what it is, but there's those emotions, that troubling feeling inside. Verse 4, Matthew says, he called, Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? He had just heard about this, and he says, they said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote, and the prophet was Micah, and he said, O you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. He learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. One thing you notice about Herod and this type of heart and this type of response is that he wanted someone else to go find the Messiah for him. This idea that, you know what, you go and you, you, you search carefully, you find the Savior, you find the Messiah, and then, then come back and tell me what you've learned. And this response is so prevalent in churches. People sit in, in churches just with that simple thing, yeah, Mark, you go study the Word, you go see what you can find, then come tell me what you learned. No desire to seek the Savior for himself, even though he had heard about him. There was nothing stirring on the inside to say, i got to go find out who this Messiah is for myself. I'm so encouraged by so many of you here who've decided, I'm going to study the Word for myself. I'm going to join a Bible study. I'll join a small group. I'll join something because I've heard about Jesus from others, but i got to know truth for myself. Herod's response had none of this. He didn't have this idea, this desire to seek him for himself. Verse 13, it says this, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod's going to search for the child, but it's to kill him. 
He's not going to search for the child to know him. He's going to search for the child to put, it, to, to put it to death. There's some who would just sort of want to try and find Scripture or find things that they can just use to, to put God's voice to death in, the, in their own hearts, looking not for what God desires of me, but for how, what can I use from the Scripture to get God to do what I want him to do or just go away. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and his, Mary, his mother. They stayed there until Herod's death, and this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious. The word furious is that exceedingly angry. The same idea of the exceeding joy, the overabundant joy that the wise men had as they were seeking and had found Jesus. He had this exceeding anger when he realized the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years and under, based on the wise men's report of when the stars first appeared. Herod was exceedingly angry. And it's a strong reaction of anger and strong things that happen as a result. And you know, that response is so prevalent today. Many people angry at God. When, they, when you begin to talk about God, it brings up this anger on the inside of them. Strong feelings. Thoughts like, God, he took my mom. He took grandma. He took everybody important to me. I don't want anything to do with him. God, where was he when that man was doing those things to me? God, more people are killed in the name of religion than in anything else. Who needs him? Talking with some atheists and finding just these strong feelings of anger towards this thing they don't even believe in. You know, it's like us being super angry at unicorns with wings and rainbows. Oh, I hate unicorns, wings, rainbows. Why? They don't exist. <laughs> and yet this God they don't believe exists, it elicits such anger on the inside of God. <laughs> you failed me. And Herod tried to do everything that he could to stop Christ from coming. Thought about it's kind of like the Grinch, you know, who did everything he can to stop Christmas from coming and wasn't able to. And we know in that story, the Grinch's heart grows three sizes that day and something changes for him, but not for Herod. Herod was so determined, so determined to stop, to stop um, Christ from coming that he killed all the, all the baby boys in that area and realized sometimes that anger and that hatred just, you end up closing the door to, to God's voice, to God's plans, to God's hope for your life. There's one final group thinking, good, you know, I don't want to be in one of that. I don't want to be in that group. The last group that kind of gets lost in this story is found in verse, verse uh, 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem. See, the, the, the wise men had come, and they'd been asking these questions in Jerusalem, and, 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 and people were hearing about it and knowing about it. And there was, you know, it's not this idea that everyone means like every single person in Jerusalem. There was a lot of people there. But it's kind of like that everyone of like when you're going, you know, as a teenager, you're like, Dad, can I go to the party? Everyone's going to be at the party. I got to be there. And Dad's like, you know, Justin Trudeau's going to be at the party, really? And like, well, not Justin, but everybody that means anything. Every, you know, everybody from my school is going to be there. And it's that idea of there's enough people that it matters. And the same thing, everybody, there was enough people around Israel and around Jerusalem that had heard these, these questions from the wise men because it filtered its way to Herod. Do you know it says in verse 4 that he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he asked them, where is this Messiah going to be born? See, they'd all been hearing these questions about the Messiah. And so finally he gets them together and says, hey, hey, um, where is he going to be born? So these religious people, 
They knew enough to look up the Scriptures and find out, okay, this is where he's going to be born, and that's all they did with it. They knew the Word, but they did nothing with it. They heard the thoughts, but they had no action to go seek the Messiah for themselves. The one they'd been waiting for their whole lives could possibly be 10 miles away. Yet not one of them, not one of them took what they had heard. Not one of them took the words that they had heard and went and actually looked for the truth of the Messiah. They were too busy with religious experience and religious things that they missed the Messiah that, they, that it was all about. And for some, you sit in church and it's like, yeah, I'm kind of doing the religious thing, but you're missing who it's all about. Matthew writes his letter to help the Jewish people realize that they may just have missed who it was all about. And as he carries on writing, he writes in Matthew, the, the next chapter about John the Baptist, baptizing people and pointing out and saying, Jesus He's the Son of God. So he reveals in the early chapters that as a child, as a baby, he was the king, not just a baby. And he reveals that he's the Son of God, not just a son of these people. John, the disciple, he writes uh, later on, one of Jesus' followers, he writes about this vision that he has of Jesus years later. And he writes it like this in Revelation chapter 1. He says, when I turned to see he was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. And what that means is he says, there was someone who looked like Jesus, the Jesus that he had walked on the planet with. All of a sudden, he sees a vision of him, but he doesn't look like he remembers him to look. He says his head and his hair or he said he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Ever heard those? It's loud. It's powerful. It goes right through you. It says he held seven stars in his right hand, and the sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was like the sun with all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. When his eyes were open to see who Jesus really was, it was like, I, by himself in that place, fell on his face as if he were dead. I've been reading a marriage book by Francis Chan. has very little to do with marriage so far. has a lot to do about this idea of how we live our lives. And in there, he writes about this and just said, you know, have you pictured the moment where you are going to have that John moment? Because each and every one of us is going to one day stand before God Almighty. Have I pictured that moment as I thought about that? He says everyone who writes about picturing and seeing Jesus in heaven has the same response. They all fall flat on their face as if they're dead because of how amazing and how awesome, how powerful and how strong he is. And he said so much of our lives, we live planning for the end of our lives here, planning for our retirement, what it's going to look like. That's where we spend all of our, our, our seeking is to make that part of our life amazing. And he says, you know what? We plan for this little 10-year window of our life rather than the millions of years in eternity. He says, I don't want to live like that. I want to plan for the next 10 million years of my life. I want to live today in relation to that moment where I stand before him. What's he going to say about my today in that moment? Do we live with that in our thoughts and in our minds? And I ask that question because it brings us back to today. What about today? What about you and what about me? 
The verse that got me thinking about all of this, this whole series, actually came from this one verse. As I was doing, just uh, reading through the Word one day, I came to this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples in this region called Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answered him and they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. And then he asked them this question, but who do you say that I am? It's fine about what everyone else says, but who do you say that I am? And that's my question for you today. That's his question for you today. Who do you in 2015, sitting in Kingsway Church in Balmoral, who do you say that Jesus is? Not who does everyone else think, not who does Mark say, who do you say? It's a question worth asking yourself, and it's an answer worth seeking. See, Matthew's eyes were open to who Jesus really was when he saw him raised from the dead. John the Baptist's eyes were open to see who Jesus really was when he um, saw him um, uh, baptized in, that, in, the, in the water. The, the wise men, their eyes were open to see who Jesus really was when they entered that house. Peter's eyes were open to see who Jesus really was because he answered the question and said, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. That was his answer to that question. And Jesus said, you know what? Nobody told you this. My Father revealed that on the inside. Your eyes have just been opened. You know who I really am. No, don't tell anybody about it, he said. They weren't ready for the world to know that yet. John, the disciple, saw who Jesus really is, and he wrote about it in Revelation. But the question is, it's good for everybody else, but what about me and what about you? Because it's personal this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because it matters. It matters who you say that Jesus is. If you haven't found the answer to that question, are you seeking it? Are you looking for the answer to that question? And my question to you is this. Isn't your soul worth figuring out to the answer to that question? Isn't your soul worth seeking to find the answer to who do I say that Jesus is? See, our world and our culture has a seeking everything else. Seeking happiness, seeking purpose in life, seeking stuff. Not seeking the one thing that we actually need, the one thing that actually matters. And Jesus said it to his followers. He says, you know, what good is it if you gain, if you gain all the stuff that you're seeking for and you lose your soul? How much will you give of everything that you were able to gain for your soul? And he answers and basically says, you'll give it all. You would trade everything you're seeking for now for your soul. So why not switch that and start seeking the answer to your soul problems rather than, rather than just seeking all of the stuff? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, if you had something in your eye, you know, or a toothache, you'd seek relief until you found it. You ever had a splinter in your eye? You're like, ah, oh, I can't do anything else until I get this out of my eye. He says, how much more when we know that there's something wrong in our soul that we would just not even bother to seek relief, to seek the answer, to seek what would save our soul. So what about your soul? See, the wise men, as they went seeking Jesus, that was the most important thing, more important than anything else that they had to do in their lives. They left their kingly duties. They left, they left their observatories. They left possibly their families behind. They said, it doesn't matter. I have to find the Savior for myself. I have to find the truth for myself. And maybe no, none others around them would say, what, you're going to leave your prestigious positions? They would have said, though none go with me, I'm going to follow that star until I find what I'm looking for. 
And my encouragement, my challenge to you is too often, we're too focused on everyone else around us. What are they going to think of us? That we don't ask the questions, that we don't seek, that we don't try and answer that question on the inside. Who do I really say that Jesus is? And I want to challenge you that as a pastor of a church, of being here every Sunday, looking out at a crowd of people whose souls I don't always know. But I don't need to, but you do. And it's worth asking yourself that question. I want to close with these thoughts. The wise men weren't the only seekers in the story. See, we celebrate Christmas and the fact that Jesus came. Luke wrote about it this way. In Luke 19, verse 10, he wrote that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He came looking for us first. He's looking for you this morning. And he's looking, that seeking is that idea of I'm not stopping till I find. I'm going to keep looking for you until I find you. I'm not going to give up. And this morning, if you feel that twinge in your heart, that's him looking for you while there's still time. And while there's still time is while you're alive on this planet. Tomorrow, I have to do a funeral for a 32-year-old person who thought they had all life ahead of them, but it's over. We don't know what that window of time is, but we know that he's looking for us, that he's looking for you. And why? He's looking for what was lost because he loves what's lost. So often we think, oh, you know, I'm not good with God. I've got to fix things. I've got to do stuff. He says, just look for me. I'll do that. I love you. I love you even while you're lost. This week or a little bit ago, Beth lost her rings. She lost her wedding ring, her engagement ring, and her family ring. And we can't find them anywhere. And then I had this idea that, you know, the kids, we just taught them how to vacuum. Maybe, maybe they just vacuum them up. And so I went, and I've shown you pictures of our central vac canister before, and it's disgusting. But I opened up the central vac canister, and I began to go through and through the boogers and through the old Cheerios and the dirt and the dust and other people's hair that Beth cuts. There's nothing more disgusting than that. Looking, piecing through, rubbing every fiber because I want to find these rings. And I wouldn't stop until I'd found them. And I got to the very bottom of the thing and gone through every speck of disgustingness. I didn't find them. But as I thought about it, it's a poor picture of this. But, you know, what would it have been like for the sinless Son of God who had everything in perfection to leave heaven, to come to a planet just disgusting with sin? to put himself in that place, to leave pure light, eternal light, and come to a place where all there was was darkness. To be the one who came and said, sinless, to take on my sin on him, knowing that that would bring the wrath of God on him to take it for me. But it was love, that love for what was lost that made him come and made him go through that, the, the, the cross for us to seek and save which was lost. And it comes down to this last thought. It's a matter of lordship. This morning, this whole idea of answering the question, who do I say that Jesus is? It's so important that we get to that place where we can say that Jesus is Lord. That's where the answer comes from. In Romans chapter 9, verse 10, he says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, the answer to the question, if it's anything other than this, we're missing what it's really all about. He said that, the, that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Salvation comes with that answer to that question. Not just, I believe he's Lord. 
that he is Lord. It says, for it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. It's by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. So who do you say that Jesus is? Would you join those other people and say he's a good man? He's a moral teacher. He's a Bible story character. He's a little baby in a manger. He's a myth. He doesn't exist. Or would you say he's the Messiah? He's the one true son of God. As Peter said, see, today, truly, this Christmas story is a story of life or death. And today, it's personal. It has to be. So my question that I challenge you to ask yourself is, who do you say? Put your name in there. Who do you really say that Jesus is? What will your response be this morning? What is it? Which one of those three groups are you most like? Will you remain angry at God and just resist Him? And his lordship over your life like Herod did? Will you hear the words spoken today and just, yeah, I made it through that service and move on with your way, just like the religious people of that day did, did nothing with it? Or will you seek him? Will it inspire you to seek him until you really find and can answer that question for yourself? And then at that point of realizing that Jesus is Lord, would you worship him with your life? Would you realize that he is Lord like the wise men realized? Which one of those is the closest to you? Would you be able to say, as the Christmas carol said, oh, come, let us adore him. I'll come and adore him because he's Christ the Lord. And could you say it this way, oh, come, let's us adore him because he's Christ my Lord. Is it personal for you this morning? I know we went a little bit long, but this morning I feel like I can't not ask that question, and I hope it just lingers in your head until you find the answer for yourself. You don't have to choose that he's Lord. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to decide anything. Nobody's telling you you got to do anything. My encouragement and challenge to you is to simply answer that question for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that makes it alive and opens our understanding to it. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for loving us enough and so much that you would come and live your life on this planet that had turned their back on you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for loving me as I've turned my back on you. And Jesus, thank you for paying for my salvation completely, that all I have to do is simply trust in you for that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you do what none of us can do, and would you just speak to each and every heart in this place the words that they need to hear this morning, that we might be able to <laughs> see who you for who you really are, God, that you'd give the faith needed for those to receive you and believe you. And God, that each of us would be challenged even more to continue to seek you and submit to your lordship in our lives for your glory and also for our good. We thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.